In chapter 12, the theme was the Christian service. In chapter 13, the theme was the Christian citizenship. Now, Paul in chapter 14 is going to bring to bear the theme of the Christian conscience. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, read along with me. Paul writes, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Paul is going to address the issue of how we solve problems and how we resolve conflict. What do we do when we have disagreements on matters of faith, matters of conduct, matters of preference? Paul knew that every congregation would contain old and young, mature and immature. And in the early church, remember, there were slaves and there were Free. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. In the early church, there were three explosive and divisive issues that threatened the unity and the health of the early Christian congregations. There was the issue of circumcision. There was the issue of dietary restrictions. There was the issue of holidays, holy days, or feast days. And in the early church, you can imagine that many Jewish people growing up in Jewish traditions and and, and Jewish cultural traditions would want to hold on to kosher, to holy days, and dietary restrictions. And then you had a group of Romans and Greeks who grew up with no such religious prohibitions and no such religious distinctions, if you will, concerning eating. And so you can imagine that in the early church, they struggled with whether or not the issue of Gentiles having to become so-called Jews in order to practice New Testament Christianity. To put it another way, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian? In the modern day, the issues were framed somewhat more broadly. 
We're talking about issues of liberty and license. What am I free to do? What am I forbidden to do? As an early Christian, I often ask the question, hey, well, what can I do and still get away with being called a Christian? You know, that's not a very mature response. The issue isn't what can I reasonably get away with and still name the name of Christ. The reality becomes, what am I free to do now that Jesus loves me and he's saved me, he's redeemed me and forgiven me? We understand that Paul understood that there were difficulties. What do you do? What do you do in those gray areas? He knew that disunity caused fights and splits and divisions. Can I watch TV and be a Christian? Can I get a tattoo and be a Christian? Can I follow the Broncos faithfully week after week after week and see them go into the finals and then to the Super Bowl only to lose with such great, great disappointment? Can I do all of that and still be a Christian? And you might think, well, this is absurd. Those are kinds of absurd kinds of things. Can I drive a car and be a Christian? Can I have a cell phone and, have a, and be a Christian? The Amish will say, no. In the book of Romans, Paul has taken a great deal of time to describe our freedom in Christ, our liberty in Christ, our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul will address the difficult issues. I remember I was uh, counseling a couple about their marriage problems and their fights and, and disagreements were causing a great deal of stress and difficulty in the, in the family. And with complete seriousness and sincerity, the wife summed up their problems this way. Whenever we have an argument, my husband goes his way and I go God's way. It was interesting to me. Even on those issues where the Bible was silent, even on those issues that the Bible doesn't specifically address, she believed that her way was God's way and that her husband's way was the devil's free way. The husband said, my wife said I never listened to her. At least I think that's what she said. Paul's focus in the chapter isn't to lay down the law. It isn't to spell out the rules. It isn't to give a you can do this list or you can't do that list. Paul's focus is on attitude. And Paul will lay down several principles to negotiate the treacherous waters of personal differences, personal preferences, non-essential matters. And these principles can be applied to the young and to the old, to the mature and the immature, to those who grew up in a Jewish tradition or a Gentile tradition. We can state these principles really in the form of a question and we're going to come back to them throughout our study in this chapter of chapter 14 and chapter 15. Let me just give them to you very briefly. The first question, when I'm trying to decide, do I have permission in Christ to do this or refrain from doing this? 
the first question we ask ourselves is, am I fully persuaded? Am I completely convinced that my actions are informed, not necessarily by personal emotion, but biblical conviction? Is what I'm about to do something that I feel I must do? Or is this something that I'm informed by biblical conviction? Someone has said that opinions are things that we hold, but convictions are what holds us. And so we find that in verses 1 through 5. The second question Paul will ask is, am I doing this With the understanding that I'm under the full scrutiny, the full view of Jesus, is my deep desire to honor him in verses 6 through 9. The third question we can ask is, will my actions please Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ? In other words, will it pass the Jesus test? As I present it to Jesus and I go, Lord, is this something that's going to honor you and please you? Does my behavior cause other people to stumble in verses 13 through 21? Can I honestly say that I'm doing this by faith in verses 22 and 23? That is, remember, everything that's done apart from faith can legitimately be called into question. Am I doing this by faith or am I doing it apart from faith? And number six, can I honestly say that I'm doing this to please myself or to please others? In chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And here's what you need to know, even as we continue our discussion. The Bible speaks and gives clear direction about certain beliefs, certain behavior, certain doctrine, certain duties. You shouldn't have to ask permission. Is it okay for me to rob this liquor store? Really? Are we going to have this discussion? Is it okay for me to lie? Is it okay for me to cheat? Is it okay for me to steal? Is it okay for me to be involved in sexual immorality? How can you not know the answer? This is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about two broad areas. The first area is everything that the Bible has spoken about specifically. Given us a commandment or a prohibition. Then there's broadly the things that the Bible hasn't spoken about. For the Christian, what is forbidden? What is allowed? And so again, Paul gives principles concerning non-essentials in order to maintain unity in the body. What is forbidden? What is forgiven? Well, we're to receive one another, not reject one another. In verses 1 through 12. We're to edify and encourage one another in our mutual faith in verses 13 through 23. We're to please one another, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Since Jesus receives us, we ought to receive each other, Paul writes in verses 1 through 3. Our Heavenly Father sustains us in verse 4. Jesus is Lord in verses 5 through 9. Jesus is the judge in verses 10 through 12. So again, the first verse, the first verse should shock you. He says, receive one who is weak in the faith. But not to disputes 
over doubtful things. In the first verse, Paul will lay out principles that help us maintain the unity. Accept those who are weak in the faith. You should probably circle that. Receive. Don't reject. Paul is laying out the principles not for the purpose of isolating or rejecting. Accept them. And Paul says weak in the faith. It doesn't say weak in faith. It doesn't say weak in morals. The faith here that he's making reference to receive one who is weak in the faith I'm going to suggest to you probably is a reference to the faith that we have embraced as Christians. That is not the Catholic faith or the Protestant faith. It isn't talking about that. It's talking about the issues of salvation. It's talking about the faith that we have that Jesus is the Lord. That he was born of a virgin. That he lived a perfect life. That he died on the cross. That he rose from the dead. He's talking about the faith that surrounds the issues of salvation. And I'm going to even suggest to you the issues of freedom in Jesus. What if people are mature or immature? They don't have a really good understanding of grace or freedom. To accept or receive is a very interesting word. That very opening word is pros, lambano. It's, it, it's an interesting word. It meant to welcome. It meant to welcome into fellowship. Um, look for reasons to associate instead of dissociate. Pros means to draw towards. Lambano yourself. This word in that language meant when you meet people, greet them, embrace them, and draw them to yourself. If you grew up in a household like I did with, a, with an Italian grandmother, when the grandmother meets you at the door, she grabs you. She grabs you and her by the shoulders and she squeezes you and she, she pushes you towards her and she smothers your face with kisses and she goes, I'm so glad to see you. This is what it means to grab And then draw to yourself. And right at this very moment you might be thinking. Who are the weak? Receive one who is weak. And what really constitutes doubtful things versus essential things? And I'm happy, happy, happy to answer those questions. But you would be missing the point. If you don't understand the context that Paul is even asking the question. It has to do with your attitude. And my attitude. You may love to argue. And the Bible gives lots of rules to argue effectively and persuasively. The Bible is a great book about stating truth and embracing truth. There are helpful arguments. But Paul also says there are harmful arguments. In Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15, Paul will describe the characteristics of the person who is weak in the faith. Look what it says in verse 2. They eat 
herbs or vegetables. They are grieved or troubled in verse 15. They're easily stumbled or offended in verse 21. They're made weak in verse 21. They doubt in verse 23. And the strong are told to bear with the scruples of the weak in chapter 15 verse 1. Or the infirmities of the weak or, the, or, or those who are experiencing the disabilities. Whether weak or strong, Paul will point out that the, that the strong's responsible responsibility is to uphold the weak. Paul knew that disputes over doubtful things in verse 1, over non-essentials, that's what the doubtful things are. It's the Greek word dialogizome, dialogizome. He admits that these are doubtful things. That means non-essential things. And the very fact that he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things, that there are doubtful things. They really do exist. So if you live in a world where it's either black or white, then the chances are, again, you're missing the point of the freedom The word dialogizome is translated opinions in the New American Standard, doubtful points in the New English Bible, disputable matters in the NIV. Again, let's ask the question, what are doubtful things? These are the opposite of certain things. I want you to think about that very simple definition. What is certain The identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, his resurrection of of Jesus. We are certain about Jesus' death and physical resurrection. We're, We're certain about the essentials of the faith. Who is Jesus? How are we saved? What does it mean that you have to, that Jesus died on the cross? Certain things are the nature of God. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Certain things are the authority and the inerrancy of the scripture. Certain things include the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Certain things regard the nature of sin, redemption, salvation, and reconciliation. Certain things are are things like Jesus ascended into heaven and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's another certain thing. And that's the liberty or the freedom that Christians have in Christ. Doubtful things are those things without clear approval. Doubtful things are those things without prohibition or approval. We must not forbid what the Bible does not forbid. We must not command what the Bible does not command. Doubtful things are those things that require us to pray and to decide based on principles in the Bible. Doubtful things are those things that require discernment before we make the choice to either embrace it or reject it, absent divine revelation. Paul gives illustrations of two doubtful things, food and feasts. And so right from the start, 
He says, welcome people into fellowship. Associate with them. Don't disassociate with them over things that don't matter. We're not to despise or condemn them in verse 3. We're not to be selfish in chapter 15, verse 1. We're to build each other up. We're not to tear each other down in verse 2. St. August, Augustine said it well. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, good. Somebody remembers. In all things, charity. In verse 2 it says, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Again, who are the weak in verses 1 and 2? He who is weak eats only vegetables. By the way, the Greek word for vegetables here is very interesting. It means those things that are dug out of the dirt. I find that very, very interesting. Especially for people who believe in, who live in Boulder and who believe that the Bible commands that you can only eat vegetables. Now don't get me wrong. Is it wrong to be a vegetarian? No. The weak appear to be the hypersensitive. In the cultural context, the weak appear to be those people who observed the dietary restrictions and prohibitions. But it wasn't limited to Jewish people. You see, Jews who came to Christ had an inclination to remain kosher. But there were pagans who came to Christ. And the pagans who came to Christ, you have to understand something, that there would be ritual sacrifices. There would be sacrifices of bulls and goats and even pigs and chickens. People would take a ritual sacrifice and they would cut the throat of the victim and, and they would bleed it out and then they would cut it up and then they would barbecue it. But before they did that, they would have prayers and oblations. Imagine you're living in a world, you're living in a culture, in a society, whether you're going to the temple of, of Zeus or the temple of Hera or the, or, or the temple of Ascalaeus or Apollo, whichever your god du jour happened to be, and you would offer the sacrifice. And during the course of the offering and the prayers, they would invite the deity to inhabit the animal, and then they would cut its throat, and then they would cook it, and they would eat it, and they believed that they were partaking of the god. Now imagine you go to King Supers or you go to Albertsons or you go to wherever it is that you shop and there is this great big steak for Father's Day and then there's this other one that says sacrifices made to Satan. And you go, you know, I wonder which one of these steaks I'm going to get. Am I going to get the one that was corn fed in Nebraska, or am I going to get the one that was raised in a trailer park in the San Francisco Bay Area where a group of people held hands and chanted to Satan to come and inhabit the cow and then they slit its throat? You might be going, mm, I'm going to go with the cow in Nebraska. Some of you might even go, I'm not going to go with anything. When Paul says, for one believes he may eat all things, you have to understand that the concern for proper preparation of food would make it almost impossible for Jews and Gentiles to have a meal together. 
This made it difficult to promote fellowship and unity in the early church. And like I said, the Jews weren't the only ones who worried about meat and food preparation. Gentiles steeped in pagan cultures also worried about it. But Paul reminds the Romans that he is free to eat anything he wants. For the person who says Paul is a Jew and he's an observant Jew and he kept the dietary codes and, 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 and the restrictions, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Jesus said it is not what goes into your stomach but rather what proceeds from your heart that defiles the pers- person. In Mark chapter 7 verse 15, Jesus said there is nothing from outside a man that entering into him can defile him. It was Jesus' way of saying, food cannot contaminate the soul. But there are people who really believe that. Mormons believe that if you drink coffee, you're contaminating your soul. There are other people who have dietary restrictions or prohibitions, but they wrongly think that you can eat something that can affect you spiritually. It's not True, you can eat certain things like bad sushi and little parasites and amoebic poisoning can wreak havoc on your large and small intestines. But the prohibitions or the restrictions are dietary. And if you say, I can't eat this because I have an allergic reaction, there's nothing wrong with that. It was only recently that I heard about the gluten phenomenon. Now imagine you're an Italian person growing up in an an Italian home and someone says to you, you can't eat spaghetti ever again. What? What? What are you talking about? Or imagine you grow up in a Hispanic household and you never ever get to eat a flour tortilla forever, ever, amen. Well, guess what? People who have gluten restrictions, it sometimes severely restricts their diet. Whether it's, whether it's dairy or whether it's gluten. Three boys my wife and I have. Oldest, middle, youngest. Oldest son's wife has a gluten problem. Youngest son, Jonathan, Carolyn's has a gluten problem. Imagine at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving. What do you do? Here's what you do. You have a gluten diet and a gluten-free diet because you love your children and you love your grandchildren. You're not looking for reasons to keep them away. You're looking for reasons to bring them in. And so here are the Romans with Jews and Gentiles looking for reasons to stay apart. And Paul is looking for reasons to bring them together. The verb For one believes he may eat all things. That word believes translates the same root word that's translated faith in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. Same word, believes. It doesn't mean to just mentally assent to something. It means to trust and rely and cling to something as being certain. It means to be fully persuaded in your heart or convinced. And Paul knows that the Jewish distinctions of kosher don't exist in the dispensation of grace. Both meats, foods, and Gentiles have been declared 
clean, according to Acts chapter 10, verse 12. You'll remember that when Peter went up on the roof and he had this vision of a satanic sushi sheet coming down from heaven and it's filled with all kinds of critters, lobsters and shrimp and all of the stuff that dad wants to eat on Father's Day. It's coming down from heaven. A voice says, rise up and eat. And Peter, being the good Jew that he is, says, I'm a Jew, I'm kosher. Nothing unclean has ever entered these lips. He has the vision again. He has the vision a third time. And the voice said, do not declare something to be unclean that I've declared to be clean. What's he talking about? Simply about foods? No. He's talking about the fear and the prejudice that many Jews embrace that just simply touching a Gentile, eating with a Gentile, you would get spiritual cooties. And so he said, it's not true. Christians have the right to eat or drink without restriction. Now again, what Paul is making reference to is the type of food or the type of drink. Paul isn't suggesting that Christians have the right to eat in such a way that they sin or to drink in such a way that they sin. There seems to be two restrictions, behavior that causes sin and behavior that causes someone else to sin. Love limits liberty. Let me give you yet another example. Is it wrong to eat? Can you eat in such a way that you dishonor God? If you're smart, you said yes. If you go to the Great Wall where you have all-you-can-eat buffet for like $17.95, and you're there and you're going, $17.95, and you're doing the calculations, how much do I have to eat before I get my money's worth? (laughs) And so you go and you start adding up the tab. And you feel like you can't in good conscience eat until you've eaten your money's worth. And then pretty soon you've eaten and then there's another bite. There's one more bite. But you know that that bite is the line between eating and gluttony. And there is a line where you take just one more bite. You take one more drink and you cross the line. Paul is basically saying, look, we have freedom. We have a great freedom. But it's not a freedom absent love. And it's not a freedom that gives us the right to sin. And so, liberty is never far from them who say, I have the liberty to do what's right, to do what's good, to do what's just. And so look at verse 3. It says, dangers when we despise and criticize. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him. The broad categories are the meat eaters and the vegetable eaters. The meat eaters aren't to look down and despise the vegetable eaters saying, where's your liberty brother? Don't you understand that Jesus loves you and that he died for you? Don't you understand that Jesus has declared that all things are clean and free? 
And the Jews are not to despise the Gentiles who have every right to go to IHOP and have eggs with bacon, hash browns and toast, smothered in pico de gallo. That's the point. The person persuaded that he or or she can't eat sometimes feel persuaded that their brothers and sisters also must embrace the same restrictions or prohibitions. I can't have coffee or tea. Okay, great. And neither can you. What? You see, that's the very definition of legalism. The very definition of legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. And so whether strong, him who eats, whether weak, him who does not eat, do not despise the other. Think about what Paul is saying. If a person has made the decision to keep kosher, if a person has decided that food prohibitions no longer apply, This is not the measure that we use to determine the presence or the absence of fellowship or the presence or the absence of judgment. The strong are not to despise the weak. Paul's point is that God has received them both, that God loves them both, that God welcomes them both, that God embraces them both. And so Paul issues the invitation. So why wouldn't you? This is the reason that we refrain from judging one another in non-essential matters. The believer who understands grace and liberty might be tempted to despise the word exothenato. The word despise, exothenato. It meant to look down. It meant to hold in contempt. It meant to treat as meaningless or to despise utterly. There's an idiomatic expression that we use in our culture and society. We'll say something like, you're dead to me. That's what this means. That you look at someone and you despise them. The weaker brother or the weak believer may feel the need to observe some extra rules or some extra prohibitions. And it says, and let him who does not eat judge. The word judge here is a very interesting word. It's krenito. It's a word that meant to censor, to restrict, to limit. Paul warns the weak brother not to engage in censorship. And the strong who understand salvation or liberty. And so he gives three reasons. Number one, the Lord God has received the strong, the one who embraces liberty. No matter what the legalistic or the weak or maybe the more legalistically minded person thinks. There may be some cultural or social or religious tradition. There might be some man-made rule or custom. There might be some observation that people have grown up in a particular culture or a particular society. But we are obligated to obey the word of God. We're to be led by the spirit of God. We're not to judge or criticize, but accept as full members in the body of Christ those who choose to exercise their freedom. And number two, no one has the right to judge the Lord's servant. Both believers are servants. That's the point that he's making. 
The weak are servants of Jesus. The strong are servants of Jesus. And we don't have the right to condemn or pass judgment on another person's works or behavior. And again, we're not talking about works of darkness. We're not talking about sinful behavior. The point that Paul is going to make is it's the Lord who makes a person stand. It's the Lord who makes a person fall whether they're accepted or rejected. And number three, the Lord can hold them up. The Lord has the ability to justify. Our justification doesn't come from each other. It is the Lord that makes the believer stand. So Paul's point is often missed. Jesus loves them both, accepts them both, receives them both. Verse four, who are you to judge another servant? By the way, the word servant is often translated from a number of different words. There's doulos, which is a servant by choice. There's another word that's used to describe a servant in the lowest position, the under rower. The person who occupies the least station. But the word that he uses here, who are you to judge another person's servant, is a word oikos. It It was a word that meant the household servant. The idea being a person who's a member of the household. Some will draw character conclusions based on the presence or the absence of worldly entertainments. Some people will draw conclusions about appearance or dress or demeanor or the admission of activities or watching TVs or movies or they'll begin to make their own conclusions about what is wholesome and unwholesome, what is healthy and unhealthy, what is spiritual or carnal. And I call this irresistible judgment. There's a powerful urge on the part of people to call into question another person's spiritual character based on something other than their relationship with Christ, based on something other than the gospel of Jesus, based on something other than salvation by grace. You look at their hair, or you look at their age, or the presence or the absence of tattoos, or the presence or the absence of whatever it is, whatever standard that you would want to draw, and then some people despise or criticize others based on how they look. But here's Paul's point. Jesus is the head over the household. You are God's servant. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he is the one who makes you stand. Our success or failure as children of God, as servants of Christ, as members of a holy family, doesn't depend on the praise or the criticism of others. See, if we were a Pentecostal church, everyone would have shouted, Amen, right at that point. But here's here's the point, that we should thank God. You should thank God every day, that when you look in the mirror, it's God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who accepts you, receives you, embraces you. People who serve Jesus, people who are busy about their father's business, people who are busy praying and winning souls and discipling the saints and, and, and... 
and doing the work of the, the ministry, providing help for the poor, ministering to those people who are in the most difficult circumstances of their life, don't have a whole lot of time to judge and condemn other people. And so he gives the test of personal persuasion. Look what it says. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He's talked about the issue of food. Now he talks about the issue of feasts or days. The meaning seems to be religious days, holy days, holidays. Does the Christian have the responsibility to observe a Sabbath day or a feast day or a holy day? Now again, Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 4 verse 9. But now... After you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. He writes to the Galatians, I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored for you in vain, because he's addressing the issue of the person who thinks that they're a good person because they go to church on Saturday. Or they go to church on Sunday. Or they observe this particular day or that particular day. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 Paul says, Therefore let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ, unquote. The raging debate wasn't whether or not a Christian should gather and worship. Paul, Remember the New Testament already says, you should not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. The issue isn't whether or not you should come together. The issue isn't whether or not there should be a time of worship and a time of prayer. That's not the point that is being made. It went much broader. The broader thing was, what about man-made rules? What about man-made regulations? What about man-made restrictions laid upon by each other, by legalistic churches or legalistic believers? Again, Paul isn't speaking about commandments. He's not speaking about instructions or principles that have been given by God to believers. The commandments and instructions of the scripture are to be kept. The present passage is dealing with the almost unavoidable tendency on the part of some people to add to the scripture. Restrictions and regulations. Paul is in no way suggesting that the Lord's Day isn't important. He's not suggesting that we abuse the day or ignore the day or neglect the day. Paul is attacking an attitude. Where a person substitutes going to church with going to Christ. With loving religion, but despising the relationship that we can have in Christ. That's the idea. There are people who set aside a Christian day, but they leave out the deity We set aside a day to worship the Lord for rest and and relaxation. But here's the point. We don't worship the day. We worship the Lord. There's a reason why today can become a holy day. It's because you set it aside for Christ. 
You, you set it aside to love him, to worship him. Paul writes, let each be fully convinced. Plero, foreo, pleris, full. Foreo was a word that meant to bear or to carry. So the idea in the context is make sure that you've thought it through. Make sure that you're completely convinced in your own mind. The believer must be persuaded in his or her own mind. The idea to convince, to assure to satisfy completely. On what basis do you make the decision? The idea, like I said, is are you going to make it on the basis of truth? Are you going to make it on the basis of evidence? Or are you going to make it on some other basis? The specific subject at hand? Food and feast days. But make sure you understand something. The issue at hand isn't simply about food or feast days. The issue at hand is what am I convinced that I can do or not do? What does my conscience tell me or not tell me? Because we know that we don't want to violate our conscience. We have to be fully convinced that a particular behavior is right and that another particular behavior isn't good for us. Clearly, If you believe what you're doing is wrong, don't do it. In verse 6 it says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives thanks, God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord He does not eat and give thanks. God thanks. In verse 6, in order to understand the passage, the key is to understand the expression to the Lord. It appears once, to the Lord, twice, to the Lord, three times. You are doing something or not doing something to the Lord. The word observes. I'm trying to remember. In the King James Version, I think it uses the term regardeth. The New King James uses the term observes. The Greek word is phroneo, friend, the mind, and so to think. We have an idiomatic expression in our culture. It's the expression, I have a mind to do something. Or I have carefully thought something through and I'm minded to do this. Or you think about being like-minded. What is Paul saying? We want to understand God's will. One person dedicates a day to the Lord. Some people see the day as an opportunity to know him, to love him, to seek him. To minister and to do God's will and to minister to God's people. Some people believe that that's Saturday. Some people believe that that's Sunday. Some believe it's a special day, a meaningful day, a day that we make sacrifices or we observe certain celebration. One person eats and rejoices. Another person refrains from eating and still rejoices. Both dedicate it to the Lord. Both give thanks. Both set aside the time. Some to celebrate. Both thank God that they're eating. And note Paul's point. Both worship the Lord. Both give thanks. 
Both celebrate. Both are, are grateful. Both are, are, are focusing on the Lord. Both are accepted and acceptable. Why? Because both are fully persuaded in their own mind that they're loving Jesus today and serving Jesus today. Here's the point. The differences are material and external. Food. Days. Paul is focusing on what is eternal and internal. The condition of your heart. And so, our liberty is bondage to Christ. We're free to do what's good. We're free to love. Liberty includes responsibility. And that's why people are afraid of it. So who directs your life? What directs your life? What forms your thoughts, your ideas, your opinions? Is it informed by culture, emotion, revelation, a settled conviction? Do you make decisions based on persistent prayer and a principled search and a study of God's word? Does your decision come from confusion or conviction? Are you informed by the Father? Do you Embrace the modeling of the Son and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We're to receive the weaker brother, verses 1 and 2. We're not to despise and criticize each other, verses 3 and 4. We're to make decisions on the facts and principles given in the Bible in verses 5 through 6. And guess what? Some will choose to abstain. Some will choose to enjoy But freedom, just like service and citizenship, is never far from love. In the back of Paul's mind, he pushes love to the forefront. Remember, service informed by love. Citizenship informed by love. Convictions informed by love. We ask Jesus to guide us. We ask his word to inform us. We ask the Holy Spirit to give us an attitude that will consecrate our actions and behavior towards one another. This is the first step in getting along without getting it wrong. But there's going to be a whole lot more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our freedom. Free to live. Free to give free to choose what's right, free to be selfless instead of selfish, free to do things for the sake of Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray, we pray, we pray that you would help us, that you would keep us, that, Lord, we wouldn't allow our opinions to become the basis for other people's behavior. Lord, we pray that Biblical convictions are just that, biblical convictions. And Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus. Lord, we hope and pray 
that we would exercise that freedom to your glory. Again, Lord, that we would draw close to you. And by doing that, we draw close to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.